Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Today on the Perception Podcast, we welcome James McQuivey, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Forrester Research. He is the foremost analyst tracking and defining the power and impact of digital disruption on traditional businesses. His consumer models identify the ways consumers have embraced digital experiences and platforms, and his strategy models help companies prepare to serve those consumers. He applies this knowledge to a wide variety of industries, from consumer media to consumer technology, from financial services to retail and consumer products. In February 2013, James published his book, Digital Disruption, Unleashing the Next Wave of Innovation. In addition to keynoting at industry events and Forrester forums, James is routinely sought after for comment by such publications as the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. So let's prepare to be disrupted. Hi, James. Welcome to the Perception Podcast. Well, hello. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us where you grew up and how you got started on your career path. Uh, That's a good question. So I actually grew up in a small town in the middle of Utah. And you'd think uh, growing up in the middle of alfalfa fields and apple orchards, and it was an idyllic upbringing, don't, don't get me wrong, But you'd think, how does this guy end up sitting in Boston and traveling around the world talking to people about technology when there wasn't a lot of technology in his life growing up? But when you think about it that way, it is a puzzling question. But really, when you dig underneath the way I was raised, my my dad was the Ford dealer in town. And... You know, every year the new models would come in and there would be brochures detailing all the new advances in the Lincoln Continentals or the Mustang or you name whatever car in the 70s was rolling off the line. And I would go down to the dealership when the new cars would roll off the car carrier. And as soon as no one was looking, I'd get inside and I'd push every button. Mm-hmm. I'd, uh, you know, when they came up with those windows that you could roll up and down at the flick of a button, wow, I just probably wore those motors out. That was the most exciting <laughs> technology I'd ever seen. And the, and the seats as well. Oh, the seats. That Adjustable was, that seats. Was, might as well have been in Disneyland as far as I was concerned to move all of that stuff around. But at the same time, I'm reading their brochures where they're talking about the future. You know, Ford was doing concept cars at the Detroit Auto Show, and they're talking about airbags and I thought wow this is magical we're going to save tens of thousands of lives and I started to appreciate that investing in technology innovation was actually the intent of it was to improve people's lives not just to make them easier more convenient although it does that but maybe even save some actual lives and and it was that train of thought that got me start to start observing through middle school high school Uh, And then obviously into college where I started to say, you know, what is all of this technology that's rolling down and how do we shape it so that it does that? It it makes people's lives better, more enriching, more interesting at a minimum and hopefully more meaningful um, at a maximum. So how did that then lead you to where you currently are? Yeah. Well, what happened was I couldn't stop my own personal interest in these technologies. So I remember I was in seventh grade and there was this thing called the personal computer revolution happening. Um, and but there were only a couple of personal computers that you could buy at the time. And then suddenly this company called Atari, mm-hmm. which you'll know the name, 
came up with this very accessible device called the Atari 400. It had a membrane keyboard. It had 16K of mm. memory. 16K of memory. Mm -hmm. That floors people when you realize, you know, it was a $350 computer. Um, you had to hook it up to your TV because monitors didn't exist yet. Um, all of these things that, you know, I had a tape drive, a cassette tape drive that I eventually bought for it. Anyway, I spent all of my paper route money, all of my savings on this computer without asking my parents permission. Um, they were a little aghast at me. And so it led to two things. Number one, I, I had to promise them that computers were a big deal and that it was going to be good for my future that I spent all of my money on this one. Uh, so that then led to the n number two thing. I got a little let's say, uh, rebellious about the whole idea. And I thought, you know, I'm going to really show them that computers matter. And that's where it started. I learned to program in basic, and then I worked my way up to C in college, even though I was a political science major on the side with a friend. I was doing custom database development for uh, a variety of clients. And, and from there, I thought, you know, I can either stay in software or I can get on the front end of this and, and be focused on what I'm really interested in, which is who's making these computers in the first place and what are all the form factors of computers? And, and when the mouse came along, I thought, wow, if the mouse moves us that much further than a keyboard, what's next? Mm -hmm. you know, and then you start seeing things like from your world where you have – uh, you know, excellent designers in making science fiction movies and they're designing things like, well, the famous Minority Report sequence and mm -hmm. all of those things. And you start thinking, this is a bigger, this isn't just a question of is a Mac or a PC the better computer? That, that's a, that question is, you know, not only is it historic now, but even when it was being asked, it was a question from the past because it's not a future of which PC. The future is, which other kind of computing device, one that I might implant in my head or one that I'll carry around on my wrist or one that will float in the cloud and speak to me through means that no one's invented yet. That, that's what really got me interested and led me into the world that I am now. That's great. <clears throat> uh, this is Danny James. I have to jump back to you uh, mentioning you're growing up with Ford and I'm a, I'm a Ford fanatic. Um, nice. I, have a, I have a couple of old Mustangs from my, my teenage years and but you know, we got the chance to work on a uh, one of my favorite projects. We we got to work on the 2017 Ford GT supercar. Oh, nice! And we designed the uh, the digital gauge clusters. And you know, Ford is is on the forefront of uh, of digital technology within the vehicles. And, and we we came up with like the center stack design as well, um, and did kind of like an onboard teaching system. Um, wow. And um, it was very very incredible just to be able to. Number one, go to Ford because I'm a, like I said, I'm a Ford freak, um, and then go into like the the dungeons and and in, into the basements where they're working on this, uh, you know, um, top secret, uh, pretty much military vehicle. It was crazy. It's a land missile, and uh, and it was just it it, it just uh, reminds me of you're right. You know how technology not only makes people's lives easier, um, but it is it's it's saving lives. You know with uh, with the braking systems. That you know now the cars can stop them by themselves. You know you look at Tesla and it's self-driving to a point. Um, it's just gonna and and that alone will will transform uh, insurance companies and other you know um, industries that you know people don't understand. But you know when you start to connect the dots, it just it's it's almost like a full circle of how technology is just you know breaking everything open. Well, I think you've really put your finger on it when. Because in this in this 
case of, let's say, making better brakes for a car or making some modest safety enhancements so that uh, you have an auto-braking car in case you lose your attention for a moment on the road and the car in front of you stops faster and, you know, the car notices and stops you, those kinds of features, when those are first created, uh, people have a tendency to say, oh, okay, I get it. That enhances a current behavior or a, a current, you know, action, that which is driving on the freeway. Um, and, and when, when I write about this and I've written about it in this particular way for about 20 years now, I, I describe it as the difference between adopting a technology and internalizing a technology and adopting a technology is when you do an old thing in a new way. So you used to drive down the freeway a certain way. Now you drive down the freeway a certain uh, enhanced way, but you're still doing the same thing you would have done. Otherwise you're just doing it a little bit better, a little more safely and so on. When you internalize a technology, though, it changes your thoughts about what you're going to do that day in the first place. So someone who would normally say, you know what, I, I can't drive because I'm not a safe driver at night, or I'm, I can't drive because I'm getting a little older and I don't feel confident that my response times are very good, those kinds of deliberations that someone goes through, well, suddenly they're driving now. And, and we're going to get to the point where... Uh, those people will never even need to touch the steering wheel anyway. And it will change the question of, oh, how do we get the kids to soccer? How do we, um, how do we get that uh, neighbor, elderly neighbor of ours over to the community activity um, without too much of a hassle of you know, making neighbors leave the activity to go pick up? The, this is actually an event that I was recently dealing with. And sure. I, was thinking, I was thinking how amazing it would be if we just had an automated driving scenario that could go pick up that neighbor and bring that neighbor safely with video surveillance to make sure that you know no one is is at risk at any point and bring that person to this activity and have a front row at the activity and then the car can go park itself you know all of these things it changes the future calculations on which you make your life decisions and that to me that to me is where the intersection of what I love which is just being curious about the technology and about the human psychology of it all with business, you know, someone has to pay for my habit, and so businesses that I that I do consulting and advisory for basically pay for me to think these thoughts, and the way they get value out of it is I say to them, okay, you know, today you make cars, tomorrow you're making transportation solutions, and what does that feel like? And as you say, it yes, it disrupts absolutely the insurance business, it disrupts absolutely the the road making business, the people who are uh, involved in every piece of that business. And then it affects everyone else who might otherwise want your time and attention during hours that would have spent on the road with your eyes on the road. And obviously, the media companies that I work with are already on this. They're like, well, okay, if you're going to have a 45-minute commute in the morning, but you won't have your eyes on the road, well, can I get you to subscribe to a special morning drive time Wall Street Journal experience that is some combination of print and video and and morning conference calls with um, with some kind of Wall Street investor who's going to give you advice on what's going to happen financially that day? You know that it completely changes um, the as I say, the calculations of what you what options are available to you on any given day. And that that to me, that's where it gets really exciting. That's where it gets impossible to predict, really, but that doesn't stop me from trying. So I first reached out to you uh, after I read your book, Digital Disruption, which which I enjoyed immensely, by the way. So I, I want to dive into some of the topics you raised in the book. And I also want to mention that I first uh, reached out to the book, I first grabbed the book uh, because I was really looking for ways that perception could disrupt itself and find new paths to innovation and blue oceans. And I just found the book so incredibly inspiring in, in so many ways. So starting off, 
What is digital disruption? Well, the way I say it when I need the short answer is we all think we know what digital is. It's new technology that's changing all the time. And we, know, we think we know what disruption is, which is someone comes in with a better way to do your business. And when you put those two things together, a technology that's changing all the time and the desire to change the way people do business by either reducing the cost or improving the benefits, and you mix those two things together and you say, okay, digital technology helps you both reduce the cost and increase the benefits of any particular industry, whether we're talking insurance or filmmaking. And that's digital disruption, is the combination of those two things. And the, the thing that's most powerful about it is because the technology, the digital side of that equation, is continually advancing and evolving, it means the opportunity for disruption is continually present. And, and this is in significant contrast to, obviously, the interest in the term disruption comes from Clay Christensen's work at Harvard Business School. Clay was kind enough to read the book before it was published and give me some advice and also endorse it, which was incredibly kind of him. He's, he's a very amazing person. But, you know, in the late 80s into the 90s, he created this idea of disruptive innovation. But even in his work, which is just very thorough, he shows that disruption only happens in an industry maybe every, once every 10 years. And so, you know, on average, someone like an Intel, which was one of the early uh, companies to embrace Christensen's work, they really had to just keep their eye on an occasional disruption. So you have a small number of people who are looking at what, what might we be disrupted in. And OK, it happened now. We, we answer that disruptive threat and then we don't have to worry about it for 10 more years. But digital disruption is such that you you could fend off a disruption today, celebrate for about five minutes, mm -hmm. and then you face another one tomorrow. Mm. So what is the digital disruptor's mindset? Well, the digital disruptor's mindset is really focused on what are the benefits that the, the customer that I'm delivering this value to, what are the benefits that they really want from me? Rather than I mean, what, what ha tends to happen, you know, companies get organized around the idea of the product or service that they make. Oh, we are a financial services provider. We are a maker of widgets of some kind or another. And so they, they organize around that process. So what's the process of making our widget? What's the process of delivering our service? And when you ask them, well, who are you as a company? They will answer with this mindset that is product-oriented. It's process-oriented. It's, it's, it's entrenched in a rich history. Mm -hmm. You know, every time a company he tells me, oh, we have been in business for a hundred years and they mm -hmm. keep thinking that that's something to brag about. And, and I say, yeah, it, could, it can be great for you. But as GE is learning very painfully every day right now, mm -hmm. uh, being in business for a long time doesn't automatically mean anything about your ability to adapt. And, and that's where the mindset comes in. The mindset says, you know, if we're focused on our customer and what they really want, then we're going to constantly be asking ourselves, could we deliver more value at lower cost? And how could we use new things in the environment, new partners, new technologies, new processes that are technology fueled? How could we use those things to change our own business? And some people will say, you know, eat your own lunch. Uh, that's fine, use whatever metaphor you want. But, but when your mindset is really customer focused, you're almost not happy if you can do the same thing year in, year out at the same price and just you know raise your your price to the customer by the rate of inflation, you're not happy with that because you're not delivering increased value. You're not reaching an emotional connection with your customer that last year they didn't have and this year they have and so they now are more satisfied. You know, they, there's an urge there that a company like Zappos 
has that urge and and not every company does so I, I try to get people into that mindset to think about breaking their own processes but you doing it in a way that you don't have to say goodbye to everything you've ever learned you just have to use technology to radically transform it so what are some ways that you break through this barrier-based mindset as you described it yeah well which is probably you know, a huge challenge it is a huge challenge, and you know it's been interesting. I wrote the book now uh, a couple years ago, and I've been out on the road talking to people about it. I was just in Singapore with a large insurance company a couple weeks ago. Um, it, it's uh, this is a topic that keeps coming up, and I go back to the book, and I still like the book. I still stand by everything I wrote in it, but I think oh, there's a couple of other things I would add to that if I could, because that barrier-based mindset where you think in terms of costs and processes and political. Um, relationships inside an organization, not that you can ignore those things, but to move to a benefits-based or outcomes-based mindset where you uh, say to yourself, okay, we really are focused on the customer. What are the things that lead someone to move in that direction? And the obvious one is fear. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're afraid that your business is going to be taken over by Amazon. So CVS runs into the arms of Aetna, for example, which it just did. Well, it doesn't run into the arms of, I guess, bot the arms of Aetna, uh, because they're afraid that Amazon is about to get into the prescription fulfillment business. Uh, And that kind of fear, that's very motivating and nothing wrong with that. Um, But I do find that that fear has a tendency to shut people down mentally. It it makes them defensive. I remember Mm -hmm. working with a hotel company right after Airbnb had launched, maybe it was a year old, and people were starting to catch on that Airbnb was going to be a big deal. And I had interviewed uh, one of the co-founders of of Airbnb on stage at an event in San Francisco. And I came away from that just convinced these understood how to focus on the benefits of staying in someone else's space overnight, whether it was in a hotel or in a in a stranger's bedroom, uh, which is their model. You know, they really understood the fundamental questions, concerns, emotional insecurities associated with that decision, and they were addressing them. And I remember meeting with the hotel um, executive and talking about this. I said, you know, you need to think of it the way Airbnb did then and still does, which is customer first. What are the benefits that these people want? And his immediate response to me, because it was based on fear, was, but that's illegal. They're going to get shut down. And in fact, they did have some legal troubles in some towns, and they've worked through those, and they've done it more adeptly than than Uber has. Uber's a company that also was doing things that were borderline illegal and just didn't care, which is their strategic mistake. But Anyway, fear only motivates people so far is my point. I, mm-hmm. I find that uh, I can either appeal to you know a couple of other human traits. Number one is pride. Uh, people want to feel like they did something good. They want to feel like they did something noteworthy. And d- disruption and innovation are noteworthy things in our culture. We prize those things. And so when I say to someone, you know, you could be the first pizza company in Canada to uh, to copy what Domino's is doing in the United States or the first pizza company in, you know, fill in the blank with whatever country I happen to be in. Mm-hmm. And and that that leads to a certain amount of pride mm-hmm. instead of instead of fear. They think, you know, we could do this and we're going to do it better. And I and I, I hey, I'll play that card if it motivates people sure. to do the right thing mm-hmm. for their customers. That's great. But I also think there's this other one, and I find the people with whom I have the most in common when I'm out there uh, working with companies are the people who are motivated just by this great curiosity of what could we really do here? What new thing could we try? How could we surprise and delight customers in ways that we never imagined possible? Those are the people that I tend to have the side conversations with where we get really excited and we come up with some great ideas. I actually just had one of those conversations yesterday with a uh, life insurance company, believe it or not. 
where we just started feeding off each other uh, about how they could extend the core benefit of life insurance, which you'd say, oh, it's about financial security. Well, sure, on paper it is, but what it really is is about creating confidence in the short term, in the present day, about future uncertainty. And I said, what are all the ways that you could do that today to, to as an insurance company without actually selling someone an insurance policy today? Because maybe you'll sell them an insurance policy tomorrow if you do something for them today. And man, the juices started flowing and this particular team was just really excited to say, well, what if we could help people uh, assess their risks today in a way that's that boosts their confidence? What if we could help them um, communicate to the people that they care about, that they're adulting, as it were? I mean, we just had a fabulous conversation. I And I find that you know part of my job is as much a therapist as anything. I, I need to find the parts of your humanity they're going to motivate you to go out there and try something new on behalf of your customer, um, and I'll, you know, shamelessly figure out whatever that is inside of you, and that's what I'll, that's what I'll encourage to come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we have instances where we have a, a lot of larger companies, you know, DOD companies, and you know, huge tech companies around the world reach out to us, and of course, they want they're they're all about hey, we need to be first to do something great, or uh, you know, we we want to do something that's really disruptive. But then it goes back to what you were saying, you know, we'll, we'll fall into their kind of um, their side of the of, of, of the um, of the bucket and everything just grinds to a halt because their process of bringing a new company in, you have to talk to procurement, you got to go through all these things, you know, they want us to do something in, let's say, you know, five months that's going to change the world of this huge company, but then it takes three months to get into their system and, yeah. you know, we, we, we tend to you know, fall into those traps all the time because, yes, they want to be disruptive. They see us as a, uh, a speedboat amongst aircraft carriers because that's what they are. They, you know, to, to turn, you know, one little bit, it takes a week. Um, you know, so how do you deal with these bigger companies that reach out to you and kind of get around that? Yep. So really you have two ways into an organization and all of the organizational change leadership you know, research that's been done in the academic world for 20, 30 years points in the same direction. You, you can either go in from the top and get the CEO and the executive team very motivated because they can, of course, change policies. Mm-hmm. Policy is the biggest obstacle to any of this change. It's not, it's not actually, people will say it's legacy systems or they'll say it's, but it's really, like you say, procurement is a, is a policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not a physical reality. It's just a set of policies. And um, so much of it is culture too, the company culture. Well, and that's what that. happens. That's what happens is that the culture and the policies reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. And so the policies say, well, you can't do X, Y, and Z. And so the culture says, well, X, Y, and Z must be morally wrong. And, and this is one of the weird things I've encountered in some companies. It's not unusual. I mean, you, we see it in we see it in social groups. We see it in religions. We see it in you know political parties where people make the the bad thing, the thing you're not supposed to do. They make it immoral and sinful. Um, when in reality, you could just say, well, you know, that thing that we don't do, we don't do it because it's inefficient or it's ineffective or because it'll be a waste of our time. But no, we actually have to go all the way and say that thing is morally bad and companies that do that are bad. And I, I mean, that's that's like the guy who who is from the hotel who was saying to me, you know, Airbnb is morally bad. What they're doing is illegal because he, he couldn't just say, oh, I get it. We do one set of things. They do one set of things. We're all trying to get to the same goal. 
Anyway, so starting in at the top of the organization helps with that because the C-level people motivated to keep their jobs because, you know, turnover in some of these roles is really intense, especially in the CMO role. You go in there and you say, hey, you want to be, let's motivate that pride a little bit. You want to be the person who, who created the innovation that really uh, sustained this company or turned it around. So let's let's go in and with your help, let's go in and signal, okay, we're not going to change all of our policies overnight. But we're going to carve out some areas using executive fiat. We're going to carve out some areas where we're going to play with different rules. We're going to have different policies. We're going to give people uh, some different rules to play by. And we're going to be transparent about it in the rest of the organization. And we're going to let people know that we're testing and measuring this change in policy so that eventually the rest of the company can benefit from what we learn. You know, one of the big problems that I have is when uh, when someone says, oh yeah, we're gonna have an innovation lab over here, we're gonna keep it secret because we don't want other people in the company to get too excited about innovation because we're not ready for that yet. And I say the, the, the keeping it secret part will kill you mm-hmm. because that silence will actually cause the whole rest of the organization to start building up Im- antibodies, you know, mm-hmm. immunity against whatever the innovation team is doing because they feel defensive about their own practices and they feel like the the kids in the sandbox get to play with all the new toys and they're going to resist that so it has to be very transparent so there, there are lots of layers to this to met to manage the potential cultural impact and that's that's if you're starting from the top if you're starting from the other side which is the bottom and you find some really gutsy team that's ready to bootstrap their efforts and this is like a mobile team at um at Target, which I, I've written about extensively since my book came out, because after the book came out, um, I had a contact over there reach out to me and say, you know, we've been working on this project over here that fits what you're describing very, very well. Um, and it's a project called Target Cartwheel, which is no longer a project. It's a full part of Target's customer strategy. Um, but at the time, it was just a little beta project. Mm. And Target, Target Cartwheel was just this innovative thing that their mobile team made and then went to the other parts of the company that it would affect. And they said, guys, do you think we could do this? And, of course, the initial reaction was, well, no, we can't because here's all the policy reasons and here's all the technology reasons and here's the executive authority reasons why we can't do this thing that you've already built. But somehow, and I'm not even sure I understand how, someone inside the organization managed to get them to say, but let's just try it. Let's call it beta. Let's agree that we'll shut it down if it blows up and something goes wrong, but let's just try it. And they tried it, and within just a couple of months, they had a million users of this beta experience called Target Cartwheel, which then attracted investment. Suddenly, everyone wanted to own it. Suddenly, everyone wanted to be a part of it. But that's, you know... And the C-level people themselves looked at it and said, wow, this is the future of our customer engagement model. So, you know, you, you can, it's a lot harder, but you can start from some little corner of the organization where they're just willing to put their own energy into it. Those are the people that I find are really just curious. They just want to know, could we do a better job for our customer? Could we try this new thing? Could we copy this digital startup that's outside of our company instead of instead of saying what they're doing is illegal or wrong or will ultimately fail? Let's say maybe what they're doing has some sense to it. Let's copy it. And you can do that in a small part of the organization. And they have enough energy and momentum to start a wave that's going to cause that cultural shift from the bottom up. You talk a lot about – I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, they do. I'd say just one coda to that, which is, yes, it can happen, but yes, it can also fail spectacularly. Sure. I have also had those teams come to me and say, we, we, we banged our head against that wall for a year. We, you know, our, our leader got laid off because he refused to stay in line. So I'm not going to tell everyone, go out there and risk your careers because mm-hmm. the people above you are automatically going to be smarter a year from now after they see all the hard work you put in. That doesn't always happen. 
but when it does, it's actually quite magical. So, you know, there's risk in every one of these situations, and it's just a question of what risk you're personally ready for. You talk a lot about innovating the adjacent possible in the book. Can you explain what that means and what that can lead to for businesses? I will. I love this concept. It's not mine. It comes originally from evolutionary biology, um, by which I mean this is actually how evolutionary biologists in the 80s and 90s started to explain things like, where did wings come from? You know, uh, when we think of traditional natural selection, the way it was first envisioned, you think, well, wings wouldn't naturally arise from flippers. Um, and, and this is actually a big source of debate in the world of, of evolution and creationism and all of this. And you know, I, I don't need to weigh in on any of that debate to just say it is a really perplexing question. Where do wings come from? Where do eyeballs come from? Why would sensors that pick up vibrations suddenly turn into sensors that need to pick up visible light? Um, and again, there's no, there's no why for it. But the how, the how is that you have um, over time an, a, an evolutionary adaptation which serves one purpose, and then as the, as the organism, let's say it's a, you know, a future bird, but it's not a bird yet, it's an animal with flippers, it, it develops flippers that are really adept at a particular adaptation. And for a couple hundred or thousand years, it, it, starts, it keeps refining that evolutionary adaptation until all of a sudden a new adaptation occurs, which turns out to have another uh, possible use that you wouldn't have imagined if you were starting from scratch. But when you're already halfway there, you've already evolved a couple hundred or thousand years, and then here you are at this new evolution, like, oh, this makes sense. This flipper could actually be used to propel yourself faster in water, and then suddenly you're one step closer to a flipper that could actually be a wing. Anyway, more evolution than you probably needed to hear today. But um, a couple years back, um, the this idea of what they call in evolutionary biology adjacent possibilities mean meaning that you know evolution isn't happening with its eye on the prize of someday having wings or eyes it's just happening with what's the next thing that that could happen here what's the next evolutionary adaptation that could serve a purpose here or accidentally serve a purpose depending on how you prefer to discuss it and um, you know, uh, Stephen Johnson, who's a great writer that I, that I really enjoy, he writes a lot about technology and innovation and, and across history um, and just the history of ideas. He wrote a book called Where Good Ideas Come From. Uh, I think it was about 2010 mm -hmm. that he wrote this book. It's an excellent book. I recommend it highly. He took this adjacent possibilities notion and he said, you know, um, adjacent possibilities might work in nature, but I wonder if it would also work for the history of human ideas. You know, did someone sit down and say, I want to come up, like we have said audacious things like I want to get the, I want to land someone on the moon or I want to uh, cure cancer and then we work towards that goal. But more often than not, more human accomplishments are the result of, not of purposefully moving in a specific direction, but looking at what you have today and what problems you're trying to solve today, solving them, and then from that new vantage point of, here's a tool that we created to solve this problem, oh wait a minute, we could adapt this tool even further to solve a different problem. And then pretty soon you've adapted a tool three or four generations of adjacent possibilities, each one of those adaptations being an adjacent possibility. And pretty soon you are looking at a tool that looks nothing like the first version of the tool, and it does, it may not even do the things that the first tool did. It does something completely different. Um, and yet it's doing things that you never would have imagined you were capable of. And if you think of the, of the computer, the computer is one of those things. You think of the, the mobile device in your pocket right now, definitely one of those devices that 
um, when people were first writing about mobile phones as computers, which we were doing in the in 1999 and in the year 2000, wrote a report about the latent demand for mobile web, and we were trying to describe why you would use a mobile device to connect to the internet, and and people were all bogged down at the time. I was like, well, it's going to be costly. We don't have the strength of radio signals to do that. They they were all focused on the wrong thing. It's like, no, 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 no. We're going to actually tell you what the human behaviors are that people would want from that device. But in order to do that, we had to start with what do people currently do with computers? And then what are the adjacent possibilities? Like if you currently check your bank balance on your computer using your dial-up AOL connection like you might have in the year 2000, would you do so on your mobile phone? And, and the first thought that almost everybody had was, well, of course not. It'll be, it'll be more difficult. It'll be harder. Because remember, we didn't have touch screens yet. Mm-hmm. We didn't have OLED screens. We had these crummy little uh, you know, screens that you had to thumb up and down in order to get, to get any access to the menu options. Um, and, and what I could see back then was, no, no, take the technology out of it and just imagine adjacent possibilities here. If I'm already willing to dial up on AOL and go to my bank's page, log in, authenticate with a 128-bit uh, encrypted browser, which was what uh, Netscape 4.0 was, so that I can access Bank of America, or at the time I think I was, I don't remember what bank I was using at the time actually, um, and, and look at my bank balance. That's a lot of hassle to go to. Surely I would love to be able to do that by pulling something out of my pocket and pushing, even if it's eight buttons, it's easier than the current. So I clearly saw that as an adjacent possibility, and we wrote about that in 2001. There's mm-hmm. financial services on your mobile device as an adjacent possibility. Now, the technology needed to catch up. We had to go through a whole bunch of adjacent technology innovation steps, and I've written about those as well, because the iPhone didn't come out of nowhere. The iPhone came out of the iPod. Mm-hmm. The iPad didn't come out of nowhere. The iPad came out of the iPhone, which came out of the iPod. But at the same time, they all came out of improved batteries from other areas. They, the, um, the ability to have now what we have is you know an Apple Watch with your microphone on it where you can talk to Siri on it. Those are all just adjacent possibilities that were tweaked and tweaked and tweaked and tweaked and tweaked from every possible direction until they all converged in this masterful, amazing device. I mean, the fact that the Apple Watch can do what it does for just a few hundred dollars sitting on your wrist is really magical if you even if you're looking at it from the perspective of someone who like me in the you know 1980s had bought my Atari 400 um, that's just absolutely magical that all of that can happen on the on your wrist but it's also completely obvious when you see it as the result of all these adjacent possibilities so long story short too late when I'm talking to companies <laughs> about their futures, I say, you, can, you don't have to imagine the future from whole cloth. You don't have to invent it. You just go to what people are doing today and say, all right, what would be the next thing I would give them? What would be the next thing after that? And the next thing after that? And as you start building those next things, the next, next thing starts to become apparent to you. And that's the innovation path that I, that I recommend. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Um, so how important is it to look outside your own company? For innovation to do the innovation or to be inspired for the innovation uh, well you know what being being a company owner I, I'd love to hear both yeah <laughs> I, I, I really think that the inspiration has to come from outside of the company more and more these days because uh, you know as we talked about all the processes the mindsets of the current organization have a tendency to inhibit you from seeing anything other than a better way to do what we already do. Mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, my own CTO at Forrester, 
Um, Steve Peltzman, great guy. He was the CIO at the at the Museum of Modern Art in New York for a bunch of years, and just great guy. Um, he's also a huge fan of my book, so of course I like him. But he came to me and he and he said um, this phrase keeps haunting me over and over because at, at the MoMA and here at Forrester even. He said, it's this this idea that we keep saying, how do we do what we already know how to do for the customer that we already do it for, and how do we just do it better? And that's that's what internally derived inspiration typically looks like. Um, and and as, as I write in the book, and as he uh, agrees we need to do, is learn how to say, all right, how do we find a completely different way to just solve the problem that our customer really has? And it's very often easy to see that by looking outside the organization. So one of the things that I do, and it's sort of a cheat, but it works, so I do it, is that when I'm in a workshop with a, like I was with a transportation company um, earlier this year, and they, they're up against this problem of, oh, we wanna design this new product experience, but we don't have this team, or we don't have that financial support. You know, they get stuck in the internal details. I say, all right, let's for a minute, just answer me this question. Take everything else, all the stuff that you've written on your whiteboard, just ignore it for a minute. Answer this question. If someone at Google woke up today and said they wanted to own this outcome, how would they do it? And man, within a few minutes, I had six, seven alternative ideas on, well, they do this, they do that, they do that, because their ideas were unfettered by the uh, internal issues that the company faces Mm -hmm. and they were also inspired by the kind of courageous moves that they see someone like a Google typically making. Um, and, and so, you know, get the idea and the inspiration often better better comes from outside the organization. But most of all, the inspiration should come from watching, talking to, and just learning from your customer. Um, and that's tricky because which customer, under what circumstances, and that's part of the wrestle that, that more and more companies are 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 involved in now and I encourage that very strongly go ahead and wrestle with that who is your customer really what moment of their life are you really trying to serve you know when people do a segmentation effort and they say well we've got these six customer segments you know B2C B2B it doesn't matter you say we have these six customer segments and we're going to serve these segments but even within the segments you know that not everyone in that segment really evidences all the characteristics that you've attributed to that segment and it gets it just gets messy and so more power to you. This I mentioned I was with an insurance company in Singapore a couple of weeks ago. The CEO in that conversation challenged everyone in his executive team. He said, I want you every week to have a, a, a conversation with two of our customers. And I want you to, to tell me from, uh, be able to tell me at any time. If I see you in the hall, I want you to be able to tell me at any time you know, here's a customer I met with recently and here's what I learned about their lives that might help us serve them better. Um, And that's, you know, you say those kinds of things, it seems like a platitude. It really makes a difference. It changes the kinds of conversations people are having internally. Yeah, it seems that, you know, questions and asking the right questions are so crucial, uh, obviously, to getting better answers and getting better results. I, I know Steve Jobs famously asked when he came back to Apple and took over the helm, you know, what business are we in and what business do we need to be in and single-handedly, you know, change the course of a computer company into a, into a lifestyle company. What are, what are some other key questions that you recommend uh, disruptors or uh, companies looking to innovate ask of themselves? All of the questions surrounding who we're serving and what they want from us, those, and we've talked about those, those are crucial, and I encourage people to be asking them all the time. Um, I think the follow-on question is, and is there a cheaper way to do that thing for them? 
than we than we previously understood. And part of that cheaper way always will involve technology today, um, but it will also involve changing the. This is why it gets a little dangerous when you say something like, "Could we do what? Could we do this thing cheaper?" Well, what thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, remember when we first talked about rethinking the car business. It's not just let's do an old thing in a new way. It's let's find entirely new things to do. And um, one of the things that that has been really satisfying now is we've gotten to the point where AI, for example, is becoming more useful for companies. And people are really looking at data analytics and customer journeys is that in all of this data, they're finding things not only that they wouldn't have understood otherwise because they didn't have the ability, the tools to learn that, hey, we can, for example, we can comb through all of our email marketing campaigns over the last five, ten years, and we can extract using some AI technology. And we've got vendors that I have talked to who do this. Can extract what are the emotions that seem to resonate with our customer base, and under what circumstances do certain emotions resonate versus other emotions? And it just this all this is just sitting there, and it's never been properly extracted because without the help of AI, you can't do it. But then then the second thing happens, which is they say, oh, now that we have a better understanding of who our customer is, and we're asking the right questions about what is it that emotionally motivates our customer to interact with us and to use our product or service, then the next thing that technology can help us do is turn around and more cheaply deliver that customized, specialized message so that we can find out that, oh, you know, you actually respond to this set of emotional invitations. This seems to be something you value. So, well, let's give you what you value and let's do it in an automated way that only technology can do uh, because we can't have people sit down and write individual emails for everyone on our customer list, but we can have the AI write individual emails for everyone on our customer list that recognize the specific things that those people uh, value in an email invitation, you know, to come back and shop at our website or at our app or what it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's, that's those are the kinds of questions. It's not just what are we doing for you? What are, what's motivating you emotionally? But then how could we use technology to do it more regularly, more consistently, on a more frequent basis? That's one of the things I ask people to consider is, how frequently are you interacting with customers today, and can you increase it even by 10%? And when you take something like, um, oh, an easy example is something like uh, a big box retailer who back in the day, uh, you know, I won't say names because I actually know the data on these companies and I don't want to imply that I'm giving away their data, but think of a big box retailer of customer electronics or home furnishings or something like that. They were lucky. If their average customer was in their stores one and a half times per year, so if they could drive that up to 1.65 times or a 10% increase, that was huge. Mm -hmm. And so we'd say, well, okay, how do you do that? And maybe driving them into the store 10% more often would require driving uh, non-store interactions up more frequently as well. So you got to look at frequency across every aspect of frequency. And and that includes not just selling products, not just having people in the store, but it includes interacting with them digitally um, in ways that the customer finds meaningful, not just promotions, not just, hey, here's 10% off if you come back this week, but hey, here's information that we know you value. Here's something about your lifestyle that we know you appreciate and we want to help you get more out of that aspect of your lifestyle. And all of these things are made more possible with technology at a lower cost than we ever could have before digital disruption. So what are some some exercises you recommend to business owners and entrepreneurs to figure out their customer needs? I have a workshop that I use, and I write about it in the book briefly. I think it's chapter seven or eight, actually. I don't remember now. Um, it's, it's got a terrible name. It's called the CBSP, the Customer Benefit Strategy 
product, um, and I'll say it doesn't have to mean product. It, product can be service or experience, but CBSP is essentially just a way to say, look, at any moment, and you can do this at the level of a marketing campaign, you can do this at the level of a product innovation, you can do this at the level of a business model innovation. When you are trying to generate or evaluate new ideas, start with the C and the B, and that is who is our customer for this particular thing? What benefits do they seek? And you have to have evidence for those benefits. Uh, you know, it's either from your current products or your competitors' products or some other source where you can say, look, these are the benefits these people seek. Of CBSP, the first two are entirely external to your organization. So, and actually, let me let me give you just a really clear example of this. I, I did this with one of the world's largest publishers. Um, I worked with their divisions across all around the world, where I helped them learn the CBSP method. Uh, we used different initials for it back then, but I won't confuse things. Um, CBSP, and uh, what was interesting is that in the beginning, you know, the editorial people were like, "Well, we're editors." We know what a good book looks like. We we don't need your advice on how to pick books and decide which books we want to invest in. Um, and so I worked with just the marketing departments, and the CEO said, you know, let's convince the marketing department first, and then we'll start working on editorial. Um, it turned out that some of the biggest fans inside the publisher, after about two years of doing this training, were the editors, because they were getting themselves so wrapped up in their sense of what a good book is as they define it, and as one of them confessed to me over dinner one time, it's like, you know, 80% of our books don't earn their advance back. So if we're so good at knowing what people want to read, why do we fail 80% of the time? Um, and I said, well, you know, this is good that you're having this humbling moment. There, there's the fear part. But let's, let's motivate you by saying the, your real skill is as an editor is that you're able to see why other people are interested in a book, not why you're interested in a book. So let's start with the C and the B. Next time you pick a book title and you're trying to decide how much to invest in this particular author or this particular book, start with the B. Who is this book for? Mm -hmm. And it, it was amazing how little some of these very accomplished editors had ever started that question. It was always... What could I? How could I see this book marketed? Uh, you know, which trade publications will the New York Times review this favorably? Is this author someone that's going to be really well uh, perceived? They never started with the question of who would want to read this book and why. That's the C and the B. Um, it it changed. I'm not going to say it dramatically changed. The, they're very successful still, but I'm not going to say that I made them successful. They were already successful, and and uh, I made it a little easier for them to maintain their success. Interestingly, I got a phone call from one of their design departments who with a guy said, you know, I came into this thinking, well, I'm a designer. I don't need CBSP because I'm not, I'm not marketing books. But he was in this meeting where a whole bunch of his team, they had a big book project that they were working on. And his team was um, trying to decide which cover to put on the book. And they were half split. Half were really convinced that this cover A was the right cover. The other half of the team was convinced cover B was the right, and it started to get personal. I mean, it was really, no, you don't get it. You don't get this book. You don't know what it's about. No, this is the right image. And finally, they came to him, and they said, well, you're the boss. You have to pick A or B. And he got a little nervous because he didn't want to upset people on the team. And he said, he, he had this great thought. He said, let me blame this on James. He said hmm. to the team, you guys have all been to the training. Who is this book for, and why will they want it? And like, Within five minutes of muttering to themselves, they all agreed unanimously on which cover needed to be on the book. And it was because they 
up until that point, they were advocating for what they wanted to see on the book, not what the customer who would value that book would want to see on the book. And once they inverted the whole equation, it, it solved the problem. And he was grateful to me because he thought, you, you know, you spared me having to pick favorites in my team. Um, but really was a good learning moment for everyone. So that's an exercise that I often have people go through go through just on a regular basis when you're stuck on a decision when you can't figure out what to do next say who is this for and why would they want it and if you if that's if that's as far as it goes and you don't go do new research or you don't go look at some ai analysis fine but start with that basic question and it will guide more decisions than you realize hmm. so how do you know if your company is ready to be a digital disruptor mm. Turns out culture is the number one inhibitor. We mentioned that before. Um, and culture and policy work well together or work poorly together. Um, and so I, I, tend to, I tend to ask people to do a, a, pretty, a pretty honest evaluation of uh, where did our policies come from? Are they designed for our convenience or for being excellent at what we do for the customer? Um, and then what is the culture? like and you know do people and there's a couple ways of measuring culture that we use in in some of our tools that we've developed since I wrote the book including for example just how many layers between any idea uh, creator in the company and the decision maker who would have to fund that idea and obviously if it's seven layers you've just multiplied by seven the difficulty of getting that idea approved if it's three layers that's better you know, I'm not going to guarantee. I'm not going to say there's a particular number that matters, but that's just one easy way to tell whether or not your your leadership structure and culture is going to inhibit you or or not. And there's a great example of the CEO of Adidas USA, who uh, every uh, every year since he's been there, it's been a couple of years now, he has the entire organization give him their best ideas, and he has a hand-picked group of people that cover every level junior to senior, every role in the company from finance to operations, evaluate these ideas and pick a few, um, and then he funds them. So, so essentially at that point, there's two layers between the idea and the CEO of the organization. And that's, for big companies, you know, reducing those layers is, is very important. I, I'd say the, the other thing that I ask people to look at about themselves, if they know whether they're ready to be a disruptor, is have we made technology um, an adequate part of the value that we deliver to the company or, or do we see technology as something that you know keeps the lights on and keeps us from getting breached all of which technology has to do or do we see technology as a way that actually enriches the value that we deliver to our customers you know when you when you think of McDonald's replacing a whole bunch of order takers with kiosks and letting you order on your mobile before you get there so that it's ready for you to pick it up. Those kinds of things, obviously it's a very politicized issue right now because of the minimum wage battles and everyone's worried about automation, taking away people's jobs, and, and I get all that, but I'm gonna set it all aside. Because in the end, if, if McDonald's is doing that purely to save money, well, that, that might be a rational decision. But if they're doing it because they know they can more reliably deliver a better experience, that is shorter wait times, uh, more accurate order fulfillment, um, all of that, then, then they are making the technology part of the value that they deliver to to the company. And if and if you're a company or to the customer, and if you're a company that doesn't see technology that way, whether it's back end technology and how you use the cloud and AI or whatever, or this front end technology and how you use apps and other experiences to communicate what you're doing, um, you know, to the to the customer, um, if you're if you don't see technology that way, it's you're not going to magically be able to do that tomorrow. 
And since so much digital disruption depends on the digital part of digital disruption, uh, I recommend that, that you learn how to get comfortable with technology as an integral part of the value that you deliver before you then start thinking how you could change the value that you deliver using technology. James, last question for you. A major theme in perception is science fiction predicting science fact. We, we always talk about this science fiction feedback loop of uh, inspiration from science fiction, creation from technology, and then it goes on this endless repeat cycle. And I loved how you use Steve Austin from one of my all-time favorite shows, The Six Million Dollar Man, as a metaphor for today's technology's amplified consumer. How can businesses keep up with this new breed of consumer? Yeah, I do. I do love the Steve Austin six million dollar man example because I remember, you know, six million dollars, which in the seventies was a huge amount of money, <laughs> uh, and we were kids on the playground, and we're you know we're we're making that bionic sound yep. as we're running yep. around on the Slow playground, motion. exactly. And uh, and I remember thinking, wow, yeah, six million. It would take so much money to make us all that way. Of course, only a few special agents could ever be that powerful. Well, today's six dollar man <laughs> is more powerful than Steve Austin. I mean, he can't run as fast, but yet. has a tracker. Yeah, yet, but has a tracker on his wrist that's keeping track of his heart rate and keeping track of his uh, exercise. You know, has a built-in GPS. My mm -hmm. my Samsung S3. Uh, Gear S3 watch has a built-in GPS in it so that I can go running without my phone and keep track of, of all of my run characteristics and amazing and it's not quite six dollars but you get the point sure. it's, it's significantly a smaller number than six million dollars uh, despite all the influence of inflation since 1974 so um, I, I guess the the point is never underestimate how empowered and enabled your customer is about to be and, and I do like the science fiction thing. In fact, I got I got away with this. I don't know how I did. A couple of years back, I wrote a report about a whole bunch of new technologies that were coming out. It was sort of a survey of the future. And we talked about wearables and augmented reality and all these different things. And, and then at the end in that report, I included a kind of alternative view as seen through the lens of science fiction. And mm -hmm. we talked about HAL, the HAL 9000 from mm -hmm. uh, Space Odyssey. And I talked about, uh, you know, going back to the pernicious effect of television as predicted by Fahrenheit 451 um, and all these great books that have warned including you know 1984 classic that have warned about what technology might do to us to harm us and what's so interesting is that 1984 came and went and was nothing like what Orwell said um, and the 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 most of the positive prophecies of Star Trek and these other kinds of of science fiction descriptions are coming to pass. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are having, we don't have tricorders yet, but we're getting darn close. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet all of the negative things that we said were going to happen aren't happening. And in fact, most of the, to take HAL 9000 as a great example, and I get a little irked by this one because it's invoked by every journalist who wants to make a point about the future of AI and they want to say Elon Musk is scared of AI too. And, and Stephen Hawking. And, Oh, it's Stephen Hawking and all yeah. this, and they pull all that out, and they say, and HAL 9000 is the prototype. Did you not read the books? Do you not know that the HAL 9000 went awry because humans programmed it poorly? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the whole reason it did what it did to poor Dave Bowman, is because it had been told not to tell Dave the real purpose of the mission, and it got in a mission conflict situation. Well, that's easy. That's human error. That wasn't AI's fault. 
Um, and that is so often the case. In fact, one of the best points that you'll ever learn about 1984 was that it wasn't the technology that made uh, the world of Big Brother possible. It was actually the arbitrary and capricious nature of punishment. It was the fact that, you know, at the end, if you remember, uh, where our, our hero gets tortured by the idea of rats in a cage attached to his face, just the idea of rat. Now, that's as low-tech a way to keep people under your thumb as possible, and yet that's what really worked in that. Anyway, I have a huge, I have a huge beef with people who keep saying science fiction predicts the negative side of technology. Because mm-hmm. so far, those predictions haven't turned true. Meanwhile, all the positive have. But here's one of the positive things that is latent in most of these science fiction representations that most people aren't really paying attention to, and that is this. People are ready for the positive parts of technology. They are ready to embrace it. They want to use it. In all of our work, I've been surveying now millions of people, literally over 20 years at Forrester, and uh, yes, people have misgivings. They're concerned about their credit card security. They're concerned about their all of these things. These are real concerns, but yet they march confidently forward believing that the thing that they're going to get from shopping online, using that app, putting on that wearable, or putting Alexa in your living room are all more, the positive benefits are more powerful than the negative downside. And they're expecting you as a provider, as a company, to make sure that that is the case. And they're trusting that you will. And and so, you know, when I sell people, do you want to be a digital disruptor? The answer is, well, your customer wants you to be one. And if you aren't, someone else will be. Mm -hmm. End of story. Right. And, you know, just to go back to the whole McDonald's uh, thought you had, I could see them all of a sudden, instead of you going there after you've placed your order, they're just launching a bunch of small uh, red and yellow drones that are just going to drop it off right at your doorstep. And people are going to be that much more inclined to uh, to order, of course, because it's like, wow, I don't even have to get out of the house now. That's that's the point about not just adopting technology, but internalizing it, where suddenly the boundaries that you used to be constrained by are no longer constraining because you have mm-hmm. sidewalk delivery robots, which are already being tested in Boston and London. You have drones, which are easily capable of this once we figure out some of the details. Um, and, then, and then here's the question for you at that point. Does McDonald's have to only deliver McDonald's food? Mm-hmm. Right. Why? Why wouldn't McDonald's also swing by and pick up a Burger King burger or a Kentucky Fried Chicken chicken or a local, um, a local Chinese food joint that you happen to like that McDonald's corporate doesn't even know about, but the local McDonald's entrepreneur who's overseeing the local franchise does mm-hmm. know about, and so they include it in their their solution set. So they they're they're not trying to sell you McDonald's food. They're trying to sell you food. Of mm-hmm. which McDonald's is the provider, whether they just deliver it or make it, it doesn't matter. That 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 kind of flexibility of business model that's coming. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, where can people find you online? How can they get in touch? Obviously, you know they can order the the, the book online, but uh, you know how do how do people get in touch with you? Sure, I I'm easy to find and follow on Twitter, Jay McQuivy. So first initial J and last name McQuivy, M C Q U I V E Y. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm as active on Twitter these days. I think the politics of the last year have made me less active on Twitter than I would otherwise be, but I'm still there. So uh, I'm easily reached, and, and a lot of people will hit me up with questions there. Uh, there's some famous things that I get quoted for a lot over the years that I've done this. It's funny which things get uh, re-, re and recited all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people will send me little notes. Did you really say this? What did you mean? And <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's kind of fun. So I do enjoy that. Um, and that's probably the best way to, to be a part of, of any dialogue that, uh, that you're interested in, in having with me. Well, thank you so much, James. This was a, a real pleasure for us. We really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen, and good luck to you. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, 
Send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.